1960, an emerging Romanian Jewish writer and Holocaust survivor named Elie Wiesel published his second novel. You've probably read his first, Night, an autobiography of his experiences in Auschwitz. His second book was a follow-up to Night, called, appropriately, Dawn. It's a fictional account of a young Holocaust survivor who arrives in Palestine just after the war and joins the underground resistance movement, which is not named, but we know it's the Irgun. He is given a task. He is to spend the night watching over a kidnapped British officer. If in the morning a condemned Irgun fighter is executed by the British, our guy is to execute the British officer as well. And so he spends the night in an internal struggle, asking whether he can bring himself to do it, or even if he should. A moment ago our guy was a victim, at the mercy of the Nazis, of a Jewish people who were without rights or power and who were brutally murdered without pity. And now on this night, he is suddenly of a new Jewish people, enabled by the Irgun, a people who in this moment have fought for and claimed their own rights, and who stare down at this British soldier with whom they have seemingly swapped positions. If he is ordered to murder the captain at dawn, does that make him a Holocaust survivor, a murderer? Ailey Wiesel's Dawn is a novel, but the plot really happened. After the Irgun's famous Akko prison break in May of 1947, three of their fighters were tried and sentenced to death for the attack. In July, in response, the Irgun kidnapped two British sergeants and threatened to execute them if the British carried out the hangings. The sergeant's affair was a tense standoff and served to be the final blow to the British will to stay in Palestine. But as Ailey Wiesel seems to ask... How do we feel about it? I'm Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Menachem Begin was not screwing around. It was one thing for the British to arrest and imprison Irgun fighters, and it was another for an Irgun fighter to fall in battle, dying a hero's death. That's what these guys all were to Begin, Jewish heroes. Instead of descending in despair at their personal traumas and the persecution of their people, they channeled their anger and their rage and their determination into a resolute battle for Jewish lives, in a fight to renew the one small country on this earth where Jews could make their own fate. That the British refused to leave Palestine made the British a foreign occupier. That they refused to allow Jews to immigrate made them criminals. That they betrayed the Jews by repudiating the Balfour Declaration made them the enemy of the Jewish people. And so it was beyond unconscionable for Menachem Begin that the British would execute members of the Jewish resistance. Had they not already done enough by condemning Jews to die under the Nazis, what right did they have to take a Jewish life? Begin and the rest of the Yishuv were greatly affected by the story of Mayor Feinstein and Moshe Barzani, two Irgun fighters sentenced to death for their roles in separate operations. In April of 1947, they had a grenade smuggled into their Jerusalem prison. It was planted inside an orange peel to make it look like fruit. They had a favorite guard at the prison, someone who treated them decently, a few hours before their hanging, they asked him if he would mind stepping out of the room for a few moments to allow them to pray together. They purposely saved his life, as well as that of the rabbi, whom they refused to allow into their cell to lead them in prayer. 
They held the grenade between them, hugged each other close, and pulled the pin. They blew themselves up, rather than allow the British to kill them. Mayor Feinstein wrote inside a Hebrew Bible that he gave to that guard, Remember that we stood in dignity and marched in dignity. It is better to die with a weapon in your hands than to live with your hands raised. For Menachem Begin, Feinstein and Barzani exemplified the body and spirit of Jewish resistance. Two Jews from different parts of the world who were united as brothers in the fight for survival, resolved to the very last moment to make their own fate as Jews, even if it meant hastening their own deaths. The two were buried side by side on Jerusalem's Mount of Olives, one of the highest honors the nation can bestow. Forty-five years later, Begin had himself buried next to them. In all, there would be twelve of these guys, Ole Hagardom, Hebrew for those hanged at the gallows, Irgun and Lehi fighters whom the British had executed in the years before Israel became a state, including the suicide of Feinstein and Barzani. This includes Shlomo ben Yosef from episode 45, whose death drove Vladimir Jabotinsky to take the gloves off. It also includes the two Lehi fighters who assassinated Lord Moyne in 1944, and it includes the four Irgun fighters executed at the Akko prison a week before Feinstein and Barzani that April 1947, whose deaths catalyzed the Irgun's prison break in May from last week's episode. The 12 Ole Hagardom fighters are considered Israeli national heroes. Although the Irgun's prison raid on Akko had successfully freed a couple dozen Irgun fighters, the Irgun now had another problem. Five had been captured and three of them were sentenced to hang. It was almost back to square one in this game with the British. But this time, Menachem Begin was determined to break the pattern once and for all. Beginning a year earlier, in 1946, the Irgun and the Lehi responded to death sentences by kidnapping British soldiers and threatening to kill them if the sentences were carried out. It almost always worked in getting sentences commuted or indefinitely postponed. But even when it didn't, neither the Irgun nor the Lehi ever followed through on their threats. Avshalom Haviv, Meir Nakar, and Yaakov Weiss were the three Irgun fighters sentenced to death for their role in the Akko prison break. So Begin went hunting for British officers he could kidnap. It was hard going. Given the intensity of the conflict with the Jewish resistance, the British were on high alert anyways, and soldiers had strict instructions governing their movements, curfews, buddy systems, and all that to prevent these kidnappings. But two British sergeants, Clifford Martin and Mervyn Pace, stationed in the city of Netanya, were ignoring some of those precautions, and so came to the attention of Irgun's spies. Ironically, they usually worked undercover gathering intelligence on the Irgun and the Lehi, which they apparently sometimes passed on to the Haganah. On the night of July 11, 1947, as Sergeants Martin and Pace walked down the street, a black taxi cab pulled up alongside them and several Irgun gunmen wrestled the sergeants into the car as it sped away. The Irgun had built a soundproof isolation cell to hide the officers deep underneath a factory on the south side of town. And then they waited. Within a few hours, the British blockaded the entire town and spent the next two weeks conducting house-to-house -house searches. It was one of the most massive manhunts in the history of the British Mandate. They hit the factory twice, but both times failed to find the hidden entrance leading to the sergeant's cell. The Haganah was also on the case, 
scared that the kidnapping would seal the fate of the Irgun's condemned prisoners, the Haganah publicly urged the Irgun to release the hostages, and encouraged everyone in the Yishuv to pass along any and all tips and clues. But the Haganah also came up empty. Two weeks went by and the British gave up on the blockade. They continued a frustrating search for Sergeants Martin and Pace. Meanwhile, on July 28th, the British High Commissioner ordered that the three Yergoon fighters in the Akko prison be executed the following morning. Appeals by the issue for clemency were all denied. The Yergoon reminded the British that if the men were hanged, the sergeants would also be executed. But from 4 to 5 a.m. on July 29, 1947, of Shalom Haviv, Mayor Nakar and Yaakov Weiss were hanged one after the other. The three sang Hatikva as they were walked to the gallows, and then only two were left. And finally, Yaakov Weiss was left singing alone until his voice too was silenced. They had left writing on the wall of their cell. They will not frighten the Hebrew youth in the homeland with their hangings. Thousands will follow in our footsteps. They were the last of the Ole Hagardom of pre-state Israel. The question now was, what would Menachem Begin do? In the book of Exodus, the Israelites were fleeing slavery from Egypt. Chased by Pharaoh's army, Moses led them to the shores of the Red Sea, where they were trapped and terrified. But God parted the sea and the Israelites went down into it. We all know this story. Pharaoh's chariots gave chase, but God caused the waters to flow back, drowning the entirety of the army. According to the Talmud, when the angels in heaven began to sing in victory, God stopped them. How can you sing when what I have created is dying? The idea of self-defense in Judaism has always been a deeply moral one. What is permitted and what is not? What is necessary and what is going too far? The Jewish people are commanded, you shall not murder. And yet we all know that killing abounds in the Hebrew Bible. The Torah relates that the first Israelite king, King Saul, massacred the Amalekites for crimes they had committed hundreds of years earlier. Every man, woman, child, and baby was ordered put to death. At various points in ancient history, the Jews commanded enough military strength to win wars. At other points, they did not. But for the last nearly 2,000 years, the Jews existed in a state of powerlessness in Christian Europe and under the Islamic empires. When armies of hate swept against them in Germany during the Black Death, or during the Holy Inquisition in the 15th century, or in Tsarist Russia during the 1800s, the Jews were mostly helpless to protect themselves. And in their inability to protect themselves, they were not free to live fully as Jews. In the early 1900s, Vladimir Jabotinsky, then in his early 20s, had a realization about the Jewish future. He witnessed the pogroms of Tsarist Russia, the frequent attacks on Jewish communities that left many Jews dead and their synagogues and businesses destroyed. He concluded that to have that Zionist vision of a safe and secure Jewish life, the Jews would have to learn to defend themselves. He began organizing small self-defense groups, an idea which he transported to Palestine. 
Small units began popping up there too, mostly on the kibbutzim and the rural settlements to protect them from bandits. He used the military experience he got fighting with the British in World War I to establish a centrally organized Jewish self-defense force, the Haganah, which saw action during Arab riots in the 1920s. Jabotinsky's philosophy was spelled out in his famous 1923 essay, The Iron Wall, which I've talked about before. He argued that the Arabs would never accept a large Jewish presence in Palestine and for sure not a Jewish homeland or an actual state. And their opposition, he predicted, would take the form of violence. The only way for Jews to protect themselves, he said, was to protect themselves. To become so strong that the Arabs would have no choice but to accept them. To become so strong that for the first time since the ancient past, the Jews would determine their own fate. He was right. Jabotinsky died in 1940 before stories reached the yeshuv of secret camps where Jewish children were torn from their parents and murdered, where Jews too old to work were gassed to death and their bodies burned, where entire Jewish villages, ways of life going back a thousand years, were marched into a forest, forced to dig large pits, and then one by one shot in the back of the head without mercy. Some that managed to survive, like his admirer Menachem Begin, made their way to Palestine, where they discovered that Palestine's colonial overlords, the British, wouldn't allow the Jews to come, even though it meant saving their lives. Menachem Begin saw that Jabotinsky's iron wall needed revising. Defense wasn't enough. To truly save those Jewish lives that the world regarded with indifference, the Jews had to fight on offense. They had to fight for the boundaries of the land that was the Jewish homeland, where their ancient shrines stood, where the tombs of their founders and prophets still were, where the divine presence had nurtured their traditions and cultures for a thousand years before they were tossed out. They had to fight to be the majority in this land so that Jews would be able to rule over themselves, to set forth the necessary laws and policies that would enable every Jew the absolute freedom to live as a Jew. And most of all, at least right now, they had to fight to get as many Jews into Palestine as possible. Every Jew brought to Palestine was one more saved from certain death. That the British stood in their way, did more actually, fought back against the Jews. It made them the enemy of Jewish life. And so Menachem Begin and his Irgun launched a resistance movement against this foreign occupier. It was a resistance movement going up against one of the world's preeminent military powers, just about the greatest colonial force of the last 500 years. Like all such resistance movements, it was the few against the many, the relatively weak against the incredibly strong. What the Jewish resistance lacked in military strength, they made up for in heroism and drama, in the story of David and Goliath, in their willingness to throw their last scrap of hope up against their own death to ensure that from the ashes of Europe a new Jewish future would emerge. In the violence inherent in all such resistance movements, they sometimes committed horrific acts, of which the bombing of the King David Hotel was the most deadly. Their ferocity split the Zionist movement, turned Jews first with each other, then against each other, then with each other again, and back and forth with each new spectacular operation. Their goal wasn't to destroy Britain, nor to rain death on the British people, their goal was to force the British out of Palestine and to leave in their wake a Jewish state. As millions were murdered, each Jewish life became that much more precious. 
Each Jewish death was a national heartbreak. One more Jew who would not live to see the redeemed Jewish future for which they had just sacrificed. And yet to die for such a thing, there was no higher purpose. Whether it was Hannah Shenish refusing her blindfold before the firing squad, or the Irgun fighters singing Hatikva until the British noose choked out their last breath, these were men and women with remarkable poise, gratitude, sense of purpose, and absolute belief in Jewish dignity and honor. Menachem Begin was in awe of them. Israel still worships them. The fight against the British, then, wasn't for irrational hatreds, religious animosity, land disputes, or petty politics. For Begin and his followers, it was the last desperate grasp of a people who had been fighting for their lives for decades, were quite nearly destroyed, and now saw but one last fraying rope to pull themselves up and achieve what all those millions of Jews over the centuries had only ever dreamed of. Yet such historic achievements come with a high cost, not just in the Hanashenishes and the Yaakov Weisses, although those were hard enough, but such achievements, it turns out, also require the occasional moral failure that then becomes a part of your legacy. Upon hearing the news that the three Irgun fighters had been hanged, Menachem Begin made what he later said was the single most difficult decision of his entire life. He ordered that Sergeants Martin and Pace be executed. At 6 p.m. that night, the two men were hanged in their cell under the factory, their bodies left up for the same 20 minutes that the British left hanging the Irgun boys. The next morning, the Irgun tied their bodies to eucalyptus trees in a small forest outside Natanya. That spot is known today as the Sergeant's Grove in a nature preserve. They booby-trapped the spot with a landmine and left a note detailing that the officers had been found guilty of five charges. One, illegal entry into the Hebrew homeland. Two, membership in the Army of Occupation, which was a criminal terrorist organization responsible for torture, murder, deportation, and denying the Jewish people the right to live. Three, illegal possession of arms. Four, anti-Jewish spying. And five, Hostilities against the underground. Found guilty on all charges, they were sentenced to death. This was not, claimed the Irgun, retaliation for the hanging of the three fighters, but of course it was. We recognize no one-sided laws of war, said the Irgun. If the British are determined that their way out of the country should be lined by an avenue of gallows and of weeping fathers, mothers, wives, and sweethearts, We shall see to it that in this there is no racial discrimination. The gallows will not be all of one color. Their price will be paid in full. The British found the sergeants a day later, after the Irgun told them where to look, but warned them to be cautious of the booby trap. Nevertheless, the commander on scene was injured when he set off the mine, destroying the bodies. It was all terribly gruesome. The Yishuv's leaders condemned the execution as the worst crime to have been committed in the entirety of the Jewish resistance, and reminded the British that nearly everyone, including the Haganah, had searched for the captives and tried to stop it. The Yishuv was scared of what the British would do in response. They didn't have to wait long. The next day, July 31st, British police and soldiers went on a rampage in Tel Aviv. They attacked Jews in the streets, breaking windows, destroying shops, overturning cars, They retreated when Jews counterattacked with stones, but the British returned with armored vehicles, 
They fired on city buses, killing four Jews. Soldiers burst into a Jewish cafe and tossed a grenade. Five Jews were killed. The British army arrested several dozen revisionist Zionist leaders and held them without trial. Individual homes were demolished, and all Jews were banned from leaving Palestine. For the first time in 700 years, yes, 700 years, anti-Jewish riots broke out across Great Britain. In London, Manchester, and especially Liverpool, synagogues were wrecked and Jewish shops destroyed. Anti-Semitic graffiti of exactly the kind that you'd expect, usually praising Hitler, appeared all over. The mayhem went on for days. The British government pleaded for its citizens to show restraint. The British Jewish community condemned the Irgun and stood in solidarity with Sergeants Martin and Pace. They were buried in the British military cemetery in Ramla, outside Tel Aviv. But here's the thing. The killing of Sergeants Martin and Pace proved to be the final straw. The British had already announced in February of 1947 that they intended to end the British mandate. They had turned over to the United Nations the decision about whether and how to divide up the country, but they were still in charge of security in Palestine. It would be their responsibility to make sure that whatever transition the United Nations decided on would be orderly, that the Jews and the Arabs wouldn't wipe each other out, that the Arabs, by far the stronger party, wouldn't initiate a second holocaust. But the sergeant's affair broke the British will to stay on in Palestine. They were finally done. No longer interested in mediating a peaceful transition, they just wanted to get out as quickly as possible and let the Jews and the Arabs fight it out amongst themselves. Never again did the British execute a single Jew. Menachem Begin fully acknowledged that his decision was a bitter one and cruel. But, he said, it saved dozens of Jewish lives from the gallows and broke the neck of the British occupation. When the gallows break down, he said, the British rule, which relied on it, breaks on its own. Or as one of the Irgun's high-ranking commanders said before he died in 2008, the British understood that after the Olay Hagardom went to the noose with their heads held high, and after the sergeants were hanged, there was no more scope for escalation. The game was over. The sergeant's affair didn't quite end the game on its own. Although July 1947 was a moral low point for the Irgun, it was a high point for the Haganah and a PR nightmare for the British. That's because at the same time as the sergeant's affair was going down, the Haganah was continuing to run their side of the Jewish resistance, illegal immigration. The Aliyah Bet operation to bring Jews from Europe to Palestine in violation of the white paper continued unabated. It was a cat and mouse game between the navy of Europe's surviving colonialist empire and rickety ships filled with thousands of traumatized and desperate Holocaust survivors. There were more than 140 such attempts involving around 100,000 Jews during the 1930s and 40s. But one in particular stood out as the defining symbol. It was in the summer of 1947 with a ship named the Exodus. That's next time. Lehitrots. See you later.